Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Sociable, a podcast that puts you in the conversation. Through this podcast, we aim to discuss social issues, norms, and observations, all in a sociable manner. I'm your host, David. And I'm your host, Edgar. Just a uh, disclaimer before we start. Um, David and I aren't medical professionals, and neither of us have been diagnosed with anxiety or any other mental disorders. So please take everything we say with a grain of salt. We have tried our best to do research, um, but obviously research isn't a 100% substitute for experience or medical knowledge. So yeah, please take what we say with a grain of salt. And with that, let's get on to the episode. So first let's just define what anxiety is, because there is quite a lot of, I'd say, confusion or misinformation about what it is compared to like other uh, mental disorders. So uh, David, what do you think? All right, so um, as defined, it is basically when an individual must experience, when the individual experiences marked feelings of tension and apprehension about everyday events on more days than not for at least six months. And that's the definition for generalized anxiety disorder or GAD which is pretty, I want to say wishy-washy, but it's not exactly cemented, right? Yeah, I think the thing with this is that marked feelings of tension and apprehension are going to be subjectively judged by the doctor or medical professional, as far as I can tell. It's as opposed to something like, I don't know, like physical conditions where they can look at parts of your body and medically diagnosed that something is wrong. So I think, yeah, but that's not to say anxiety isn't very prevalent or very prevalently diagnosed. So there are lots of things that are oftentimes confused with anxiety. So for example, like depression, what do you think is the key reason why they're confused? Or like, what do you think is the key difference? I guess the reason why a lot of things play into it, it's because a lot of things kind of do play into it. It's called generalized anxiety disorder, right? It's kind of like, well, I guess it's what it says. It's a generalization of a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. disorders being the most common. Like different ones include um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, PTSD, etc. Many people are often affected with more than one form of anxiety, which is called comorbidity. And a lot of surveys and studies have shown that GAD is basically the comorbid of a lot of different anxiety disorders, which probably is why um, a lot of people associate a lot of different mental disorders and conditions with anxiety that might not be like medically correct. So essentially, generalized anxiety disorder is the umbrella term for a lot of uh, is the umbrella term for a lot of different uh, conditions, and depression is can be one of the symptoms, but also one of the conditions. Um, wait, kind of? I think I explained yeah. it a bit, like, ambiguously. The point is that anxiety, generally GAD, is one form of anxiety disorder that is the most common, but it can coexist um, with different disorders in many people who are medically anxiety, uh, sorry, medically diagnosed with anxiety. And this kind of creates okay. complexities for diagnosis and treatment for both the patient and the doctor. All right. Uh, okay. So 
there is like an article I read on the evolution of anxiety, as in like why the prevalence of anxiety has increased so considerably uh, in recent history, as opposed to like uh, <laughs> the olden days, I guess. Um, and it's to do with like the environment that we live in has substantially changed. So like, wait, wait, firstly, obviously it's due to things like perhaps more medical knowledge. Like that's one of the factors and more medical diagnosis, but it's also due to the, the environment of society having changed from a delay, uh, having changed from an immediate return environment to a delayed return environment. Mm. So, so, yeah. Okay. So to expand on that, basically what um, an immediate return environment means is basically what is different. Like, it's quite self-explanatory. When you make an action, the outcome of the action is immediate. Um, like for example, by the olden days, we mean like let's say like hundreds of not hundreds of thousands, but like 150,000 years ago. We're thinking like um, when Homo sapiens first uh, emerged. But to give an example, you see like a tiger, therefore your brain feels um, anxiety, therefore you run away, therefore no more anxiety, caveman brain. And so as opposed to now, you're like, oh, should I um, start saving for retirement so I can do X, Y, and Z? Or like, should I start preparing for university? What is the outcome of that? And the thing is that the human brain, particularly the neocortex, which is um, the, re the region responsible for more like advanced higher functions like language, is basically the same size as you know 200,000 years ago, which means that you have the same hardware as your Paleolithic ancestors. And like Edgar said, modern society has changed at such a rapid rate, especially during like the last 100, 500 years, that your brain just can't catch up with it. Even though like 100 years, 500 years might be a long time for the average human, because it's, you know, multiple times your lifespan. For evolution, it's like, it's basically nothing. It's not even a dent, right? So the brain just hasn't been able to catch up to how the world works as it is today. Yeah, so <laughs> like, Essentially, to reiterate, like an immediate return environment means that your actions have immediate effects. Like if you eat an apple, you are no longer hungry. If you see a tiger, you run away. Whereas in modern society, we no longer fight tigers on a daily basis. Instead, the sort of obstacles we might face are like trying to get into college, for example, or trying to get a better job, to which there's so many factors and the effects of those factors are so unknowable and so far away in the distance that it causes the returns of what you do now to be delayed. And that is part of what exacerbates anxiety. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we also see this in our day-to-day -day lives. Like if you have a dog as a pet or like a cat, okay, okay. probably dog is a better example for this, but if your dog gets mad at you or something for leaving the house for like uh, a few hours, half a day, you like give him a treat, you know, you give him a pet, whatever, and then he forgets about it and he's happy again, like wagging his tail and whatever. You sound like a bad dog owner. Listen, I don't, I don't even have a dog. The only thing I had was like, I had two cats for a few months to take care of them for a friend and it was amazing and now I want cats. Anyway, oh, what I was trying to demonstrate was the fact that- Because you can't get pussy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. That was that was so unnecessary. 
Okay, okay, move on, move on. I, I can't move on after I've been murdered. I, okay, anyway. So, uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so animals, you rarely see them experience like chronic stress. Your dog doesn't get like sad for like a week because you left for 12 hours. That might be because their lifespan is shorter, which is true, but it's also because they don't experience chronic stress. This is similar to how um, humans didn't need to, like there was no need for chronic stress or and the fact that anxiety wasn't built to um, accommodate for chronic stress. So it's not a mechanism that's designed to protect you in this environment and therefore even hinders your day-to-day um, -day experiences. Is it true that dogs don't experience chronic conditions? Well, I think- Or chronic stress? I swear I've read like articles about dogs that form massive trust, like trust issues or they demonstrate symptoms similar to that of anxiety after a certain event. I think it was, I think the article cited wild animals, but this is just an example. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, maybe it's more of like a on net thing. On net, they're less likely to develop mm -hmm. it. Okay, so now that we've sort of established some of the reasons why it's more prevalent, um, like you used the term before, like comorbidity, like, can you explain what that is? Okay, so to explain again, basically it's when there are multiple illnesses or mental disorders present in a patient at once. Basically, you might have, you know, like PTSD and social anxiety at the same time. It can be a combination of basically any two, and it's quite a broad term. I think um, before we were recording, you mentioned something like intersectionality. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, okay, it's probably not one to one analogous, but as far as I can tell, comorbidity is similar to the theory of intersectionality, which is when, for example, if you are part of multiple marginalized groups, for example, if you are black and you are gay, for example, then you experience totally different disadvantages uh, and you experience a totally different form of discrimination than someone who is black and straight or someone who is gay but like white. So comorbidity comorbidity is sort of similar to that in that you will experience very different sort of impacts where two of them intersect in a way. I'm not sure if I explained that well. I think it was good. So given that like mental disorders are becoming more and more prevalent and we are more aware of the harms that they have on people, why is it so difficult for a lot of people with like mental conditions to seek out help or to seek out therapy? Well, I mean, so, oh, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was just like a leading oh, question okay. because a lot, I think you see a lot of like rhetoric in society where if it's just like, oh, if you're depressed, you don't need pills. All you need is a pair of running shoes and some fresh air, which I personally find very insensitive, like very ignorant because while it's true that running or some other like superficial habit might be able to improve your overall mental health, to suggest that that's just a blanket treatment is very ignorant of the actual difficulties facing people like there's a lot of stigmatization against people with mental illnesses in society yeah like um obviously 
I agree with you on the fact that it's very problematic to just disregard and like toss aside mental illnesses like that. You know, like when people say it's all happening in your head, just forget about it. Um, yeah. On that note, I was I was watching like an interview or something. Yeah, an interview. Um, and the interviewee was like uh, someone who had experienced and fought through depression. And basically they were just trying to describe how it was like to the average person. And basically how he described it was he asked the interviewer, what is the most like detrimental, like saddening event that's happened to you? And he said, my sister died. And he said, uh, the interviewee asked something like, how did you feel? Obviously the interviewer felt like very sad, tragic, like crushed. And the interviewee said like, depression feels like that feeling, waking up to that feeling every single day for years on end with no light at the end of the tunnel. And so I guess that kind of puts into perspective how crushing depression can actually be and how difficult it might be for some people to find help disregarding the social stigma that exists around it. Like you even hear stories of people trying to mention it to their like parents or close friends and them just disregarding it, right? Because most likely they've never yeah. been through like someone having depression or medical anxiety in their lives. And I guess it would be a normal human mm -hmm. response to just simply disregard it as like, I don't know, like a coping mechanism. Yeah, I think, I think this is also part of the idea of stigmatization because like, okay, th this isn't entirely about like anxiety, but uh, I was reading some statistics and for example, for children that are diagnosed with autism, a lot of like a concerning amount of the time, the parents will outright deny or reject the idea that their child might uh, be on the autistic spectrum because they don't want to believe that there might be anything like quote unquote wrong with their child. And I think that stigmatization also extends to like anxiety because it's something that society, it's something that society like associates with very negative connotations. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe because of like how it's portrayed in media or pop culture but there's a lot of stigma point is like there's a lot of stigmatization around it if someone opens up about having anxiety they're likely to face a lot of this kind of stigma through the form of like microaggressions in everyday life or like institutional barriers there are a lot of things that actively prevent them from getting help right like in school you'll definitely well not definitely but quite likely that you'll get bullied for it if you know you have social anxiety and can't um, hold a conversation or for example if you're going through depression and you end up uh, skipping lessons skipping school um, not attending you know I don't know what I was gonna say I lost my train of thought but yeah there are a lot of problems around how depression and anxiety is accepted and people react to it in society because you all you often also see people like glorifying it like obviously I said like, I don't know, bro, I'm so depressed, I got such a bad score in a test. Obviously, I don't mean that, and it's not harmful in that context, yeah, yeah. but it does become harmful when everyone trivializes depression and anxiety as something everyone experiences, which is true, but, I mean, which is not true, because what you're experiencing is, you know, stress, casual stress, not actual medical anxiety. So... Yeah. Or, like, when something is, like, slightly uneven, and then people are like, oh, that's uneven, haha, <laughs> I'm so OCD xd lol like i think those are also a form of stigmatization in that 
uh, like tri in trivializing them, they're trying to make it seem like those things are very quirky or they're not actual serious conditions that affect millions of people. Like OCD as well. I remember in year six when half the year group was like, I have OCD. Yeah, oh my god. That was very questionable. I think there's also a large like cultural component to stigmatization because like for example if you're in I, I think in like some Asian cultures if you try to look for professional help or if you try to seek out therapy like that's oftentimes very contrary to the cultural values that like exist within Asian culture which is like uh, like strong uh, having a strong family trying to avoid shame or restraining or emotional restraint so i think that's also another component uh like there's a cultural facet it might also be linked to for example like your sex because i think there is a dominant narrative of like toxic masculinity in which men or boys are encouraged to like suppress their feelings it's not like they shouldn't cry because that's really so I think that severely limits the access of a lot of people to seeking out help. Okay, so why don't we touch on the problems and also idea of self-diagnosis of anxiety and GAD. Okay, so let me just go over it briefly. So as, a, as the phrase suggests, I mean, I, I don't need to explain it, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. All right, so the thing about self-diagnosis is like what we were just talking about people will just label themselves as um, having anxiety or OCD to be quirky, have like a personality trait that others don't have. And yeah, as Edgar said, it's a form of stigmatization in and of itself because it, it trivializes what's like almost a crushing disorder for people, I would imagine. Oh yeah, like, okay, okay. Um, clear disclaimer, like, this is a small, uh, this is like a small subsection of people, or it's like a generally small phenomenon. I would still say by and large, if someone, if someone tells you that they suffer, that they suffer from anxiety or suffer from depression, I would say first and foremost, believe them. But there is a phenomenon that exists in, I think especially recent society, in which people do self-diagnose. Um, far too often. So you said like people might diagnose themselves in order to look quirky, right? Mm. Yeah, um, I think that's probably uh, some people. I think other times it might, other times it might not be so superficial because other times they might genuinely believe that they have some form of mental condition, but they're unable to place it or like their research might have misled them into believing they have uh, a certain kind of condition when it might be just like one part of a large umbrella term. Like right. for example, people might think ADHD just means like, uh, people who can't focus in class might think they have ADHD, but ADHD contrary to popular belief isn't just, you know, fidgeting and trouble focusing like there's a, I think there's a ADHD iceberg graph, which is like, there are lots of things below the surface. Like it also comes with things like having mood swings, 
like hyperfixating on certain subjects, uh, like choice paralysis and others. So I think that kind of when there's misinformation or not enough awareness about mental disorders, that can also lead to harmful self-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But also from a less cynical perspective, you might people might confuse uh, anxiety with, for example, a medical condition. For example, hyperthyroidism is marked by like irritability, um, chest pain, like short breath, which definitely overlap with some of the like criteria of GAD diagnosis. And mm-hmm. speaking of diagnosis, I was going to raise the point that this might be like a problem with some of the, not a problem, but just like a lack of consideration with the diagnostic criteria. Because even though the base definition is the six months thing that I mentioned earlier, like in the um, international disease, international classification I, of I diseases, oh, I see. ICD, I don't know what it is, but in that um, edition, in the most recent edition, I think that there are like four precise symptoms that you have to, that must be present for um, medical anxiety to be diagnosed. I think it's like sweating, um, chest pain, a fear of losing control, like flushing, restlessness, something like that. <laughs> I can't remember correctly. Oh, flush, but... Flushing? Yeah, like as in hot flushes on your face. Oh. Oh, oh, oh. No, not like toilet flushing. <laughs> okay, yeah, anyway. I'm sorry. Go on, go on. It's okay. So the point is that there are these international classifications for diagnostic criteria that are quite rigorous, as well as the base definition itself. So people might not consider all those criteria when diagnosing themselves with anxiety. Yeah, since we're kind of moving on into like consequences of self-diagnosing, I think it's important to flag that Self-diagnosis is not only harmful to yourself because uh, it might not be like correct, but in doing so, it oftentimes also trivializes what these conditions are or the impacts they have on people. For example, like uh, for example, when there's like an overabundance of people who claim or who self-diagnose themselves with, for example, anxiety, I think it also kind of drowns out the voices of those who do have medically diagnosed anxiety and oftentimes if for example it makes like it makes it seem like it's something that's so common that you don't even need to worry about it or it makes it look like something that everyone is claiming just to get attention when in reality it's not so i think in a lot of ways self-diagnosis is extremely harmful to uh, it's extremely harmful to people who uh, actually do suffer from those conditions and it's also i think it's also just disrespectful right like it's equivalent to claiming you have cancer to get attention uh when you don't and i think it's just intuitively quite disrespectful if you do it for like clout or whatever um leaving leaving the more saddening topics uh why don't we talk about what we can do to kind of combat it Oh, okay. Um, I mean, we're not medical professionals, so I don't think we're really at liberty to diagnose treatments. Right, right? but I, I just mean basic stress. Oh, okay. okay. So, I guess in the case of like, uh, like not anxiety disorder, but just feelings of anxiety, 
you're suggesting we give tips on what to do. Yeah, okay, wait, so why okay. don't I go ahead? So, yeah, you're sorry. Um, relating back to the delayed and immediate return environment thing that we were talking about before, um, basically, it suggests that you know, there's the reason why you have so much anxiety is because of uncertainty. Like, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Basically, something you can do is try and remove that uncertainty as much as possible. Obviously, you can't remove, you, you can't predict the future, right? But you can, for example, measure something. Um, the example I used earlier, I think saving for retirement, you can't know for certain how much money like you'll have then, or like the exchange rate or like inflation, but you can remove some uncertainty by measuring how much you save each month, right? I guess that's like a very basic um, thing that most people will do anyway, but just um, just realizing the fact that that can better your anxious feelings in itself can be helpful. Yeah, yeah. And I think, okay, this might sound a little bit cont contradictory. Actually, maybe you no. Know, like, instead of feeling anxious over long-term goals, like getting in shape, I think I read that it's better to focus on more short-term goals, like you said. Like, instead of, sorry, give me a sec. Guys, for the record, this is post-editing me. Edgar just left for like a good minute, and now he's back. Okay, anyway. Okay, so, like instead of focusing on long-term, very unpredictable goals, like getting in shape, I think there are more achievable short-term goals that can be set. So for example, instead of focusing on like, what you want your body to look like in a year, focus on getting, focus on like, doing your workout today, or fulfilling like, the basic regimen you might have set for yourself for the day in a sense i guess that relates back to what we were saying in the procrastination episode yeah i guess it's quite similar right? anyway mm -hmm. anyway yeah because i think it's quite intuitive that feelings of procrastination might lead to increased or exacerbated anxiety uh like feelings of anxiety not right. the disorder. I, I think we're hitting the 30 minute mark. Okay. Oh, we're hitting like a 28 minute mark, I guess. But. Okay. So on that note, um, we'll end the podcast here because we're fast approaching 30 minutes. If you uh, listened until here, thank you very much again. I don't know how short this will be post editing. Hopefully it'll be like 25 minutes or something. Yeah. Yeah. So to, re to sort of like resummarize, we sort of defined uh, the conditions for generalized anxiety disorder, some sort of misconceptions about what it is, and also some theories on why there's a greater prevalence of GAD in society, the idea of an immediate versus delayed return environment. We also touched on comorbidity and also the stigma, the various stigmas that exist in society that prevent people from um, like seeking out help. We also talked about the consequences of self-diagnosis of the phenomenon of self-diagnosis okay um so with that that's fine yeah thank you thank you for yeah. listening and follow us at at sociable dot official is it under bro you're making me confused now sociable underscore official yeah it's underscore official um for regular polls updates and etc etc and thank you and bye bye